I don't know where it is though. It's just um, I, guess. I, got I did it. Fairbanks. Oh, four, here it is. Fairbanks Four Part One. There it is. No, here uh, it's in an untitled document. Somewhere. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> of course, that makes it easier uh, to find because all the other documents have titles. Yeah. Hello, Alaska. I'm Pat Race. And I'm Matt Buxton. And this is a podcast about Alaska. In today's episode, we're going back up to Fairbanks, and we're going to continue our discussion from last time um, about the murder trial, the uh, Fairbanks Four, uh, that divided the community and uh, occurred about two decades ago uh, and involved uh, four young men who were convicted of a murder and recently uh, released uh, from prison in an innocent, after an innocence trial. Uh, Matt knows a lot more about it than I do, and uh, we'll get into that in a second. But first, uh, let's talk about what's going on in the news. Matt, what's uh, what's happening? Well, the uh, legislative session's what, less than a week away. Uh, I'm currently in the throes of trying to pack up and finish up all my projects up here before I head down. Right now, uh, looking forward, what do you what do you think is going to happen? Yeah, I mean, so obviously the, the budget situation is kind of at the top of everybody's mind. Um, you know... A lot of people are saying that, sure, we're going to take it seriously. We're going to do something. There are a few people saying that they don't want to do anything or they just want to cut. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see just how all this talk um, plays out. You know, are they going to do something? Are they going to pass taxes? Are they going to cut our way to four and a half billion dollar budget? You know, what's going to happen? And uh, we'll find out. Is this going to be a straight up Democrat versus Republican thing or, or is it going to be different than that? I think it will be different than that. I, you know, I, we our, our governor is technically a Republican. You've heard a lot of the Republican um, uh, legislators in certain key positions say that, you know, stuff like we need to actually give this stuff an actual um, review, uh, especially you saw that in the House, especially after when the governor released his big fiscal package. You saw some of the um, people in the House say, you know, release statements that weren't entirely negative. So you might see a House versus Senate kind of situation. And different uh, coalitions will probably form, not necessarily just divided by party. Yeah. And so, I mean, last year we saw, um, what is it, the Musk-Ox coalition, which is the don't don't mess with our permanent fund until you look at it. And so, mm-hmm. uh, well, they've looked at it now, but so we'll see where those musk oxen still are. Who's it? Wait, who's, who are the musk? How are there a lot of musk oxen? Oh, there was like six, six of them. I think this is, this is so you're getting really nerdy here, but just long story short is one of the, um, one of the, one of the, um, strategies to get out of session last year was going to be to transfer a bunch of money into the permanent fund. Um, and that, for various many reasons could kind of mess up how the permanent fund works. And so this coalition was basically forming, they're mostly Republicans, moderate Republicans, um, saying, you know, don't do this deal. You know, you should go deal with those Democrats. It'll cost us a few, few tens of millions as opposed to permanent funds. So, And I don't mean to get too far off in the weeds on this, but I feel like that's really what has been in the news this last couple of weeks is, you know, the price of oil has gone under $30 for the first <laughs> time in, in scary and how, however long that has been. It's, but the, uh, but yeah, we've got, um, Every day, I think there's two or three articles or opinion pieces just about the budget situation, and I feel like that's going to be dominating the news for months to come. Do you want to get into the 
do you want to tell me like what what you think should be done or do you or do you want to wait and save that oh we'll save that I think that's going to be a good one for later yeah okay let's talk about yeah. that soon though because i'm really yeah. interested what does what does fairbanks daily news reporter matt buxton think about the f- fiscal crisis well, you yeah. you fought you've been following the legislature very closely and you know a lot, yeah. a lot of the players and i'm really curious to see what you think will happen and what you'd like to see happen yeah. and i don't know if you I don't know. Is that a thing journalists can do is tell? I mean, I th- like, so I think th- this is one of the things where, like, you know, ultimately, you know, yeah, I'm a reporter and yeah, I'm supposed to kind of have a sort of arm's length uh, um, from, you know, having an opinion about something. But, you know, I'm, a, I'm an Alaskan. I'm in my late 20s. You know, I like to stick around here for a while. And so I, I personally have a lot of interest in making sure this is a good state for for us and for gen- for generations and so um you know i'd like to stick around here and so you know like a lot i like it to be pretty good i like my property value not to to be worth something someday you know and so uh so yeah yeah i care about it yeah that's no that's totally cool all right we'll, we'll talk about that let's uh let's look into that next episode or the one after we'll, yeah we'll sounds jump good. right into it um okay so we've got plenty of I mean, there's other stuff happening in the news, I'm sure, but I'm going to totally blow by it. And I'm really eager to just jump right into this discussion yeah. that we that we've already started. Me um, too. So just for my benefit, because I don't know this story as well as you, I'm going to kind of recap what I feel like I learned last time. Good. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. OK, <laughs> so we had um, there was a murder committed in Fairbanks on the night of October 10th, 1997. And um, this guy, John Hartman, was walking down the street downtown uh, on his own and got beat up. Uh, they found him before he, before he passed away, but he ultimately died from this assault. And um, afterwards, the police rounded up uh, four people, who, uh, four suspects, uh, who they convicted and went to jail. Uh, they served nearly 20 years and they were and then there was an innocence trial and they were released just before christmas this year Mm -hmm. or or last year 2015 Um, so just about a month ago and um the four who were involved uh, were eugene vent um, and he was uh he was picked up by the police and interrogated and they uh told him you know as the police will do they told him some half truths and uh outright lies to try and get him to admit to doing something he was also um, pretty drunk at this time too yeah oh while he was yeah. picked up right okay so he and while he was yeah, being interviewed too yeah so he made some statements that were confusing and to both him and to the facts so then there's Kevin Peace, and he got in a fight with his mom, who actually, uh, it was like a domestic dispute kind of thing, and his mom called the police, and uh, they picked him up, and he got rolled into this uh, event. Um, George Freeze was a, uh, a guy who drank a lot, I guess, that night, and uh, drank so much that he didn't even really quite remember what was going on. He ended up at the hospital. And he was trying to be helpful to the cops. The cops came up. Recognized that he had a foot injury, recognized that they had a kid in the ICU had a or an ER who had a um, head injury from stomping and put two to, one and two and two together. This guy's foot hurts. This guy's head hurts. Boom, solved. Mm-hmm. Good. All right. And then Marvin Roberts, he was the he's kind of the anomaly here. He was always thought of as like a good kid. He uh, was at a wedding reception that night and was like having fun and dancing, and then somehow got rolled in 
to this uh, trouble. And uh, we know what time the assault happened because someone was in their house watching Conan O'Brien and David Bowie came on TV. And that's like the big, now we know. <laughs> so for sure it happened at this time. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so it's a real tight case. And that's, that's the whole story, right? Oh, uh, there's some more story to it. I mean, yeah, there's, there's some intrigue <laughs> along the way, I guess. That's um, the uninteresting version. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah. So tell me, tell me, um, I feel like we, we left out, like, I don't understand how all these guys got picked up. Like what, how do you connect all these people together? Yeah. And so, so that's, that's really the, the focus of this, this episode is, um, there's an individual, um, named Arlo Olson who, uh, was at the wedding reception also heavy drinker. He's got a pretty bad rap sheet. He had, um, a, f- a few assault, uh, and DV convictions, uh, before this event happened. Since then, he's got a kidnapping on his record. Oh, wow. Um, pretty uh, serious individual and, and his life has really been changed by his involvement in this case. So anyways, Hold so, on. so this is the same wedding reception that Marvin Roberts is at. Yes. Yeah. It was oh, okay. actually a really big one that did, night. Did they know each other prior uh, to this? They knew of each other. Okay. All right. Continue. So, so basically, you know, all these guys are at different places. Vent and peace are out at a party um, with some other kids. Marvin Roberts spends most of the night at the wedding reception um, George Freese is off with another group of people, and so no one, no one really ever puts them all together at one place, except for Arlo Olson. And so Arlo Olson's story basically starts: um, he's at the wedding reception. He's already been drinking heavily. Uh, he uh, most of his testimony in trial um, revolved around him drinking like a handle of, of uh, liquor with some friends outside behind the uh, grocery store. Matt Buxton, what yes. is a handle of liquor? It is a large plastic bottle of booze. Usually comes with a handle on it. So I think it's a half gallon. All right. That's sure a lot that, of yeah, liquor. It's, it's a lot right. of liquor. So where he comes in is he, he takes a cigarette break at the uh, wedding reception. He walks out onto the porch uh, where apparently nobody else is, or at least nobody else is looking in this direction. And he looks down and he sees a... Um, man uh, getting assaulted by, it looks like a car is pulled up um, and four people, three or four people are out beating this man up. Okay, how far away is he? So he's about f- 500 feet, about three blocks. Give me that in football fields. Oh, what is that? One and a half football fields, right? Okay, all right. And so you can see, you can make out human beings that distance, right? Yeah, you can. You could tell it, it was human beings and probably not a bunch of dogs. Okay. So he he sees this happen. Uh, he knows later that it's Frankie Dayton, Franklin Dayton. He's another man, an older man, but in his thirties at the time, um, that is getting assaulted. Um, Franklin Dayton never really is able to identify his attackers. He t- mentions white shoes. You know, he sees some white shoes and they basically, oh, so this isn't, this isn't the attack. This is a no, whole nother no, this assault. Is another assault. Yes. Oh, about, about half an hour before, uh, John Hartman was killed. Okay. All right. And so, yeah, so this is, so this is an earlier attack. And so, um, in the, the wake of the whole thing, you know, uh, so then he sees this, doesn't really say anything to anybody, thinks nothing of it. You know, there's a lot, doesn't go help the guy. It's, out. A, it's a strong arm robbery, you know, just, it's something that was happening in downtown Fairbanks at the time, apparently. And so he doesn't pretty, report it. Was, that, that was pretty normal at the time. Was that kind of <laughs> modus operandi? No, well, so it was, remember, this is also right after the, the dividends come out. So everyone's got loaded wallets. So I, maybe it was a season for stealing. 
Okay. So, um, so anyway, so he doesn't doesn't go to the cops for like three days, and finally, they his the cops maybe know that he was around. They would want to interview him because now they're out looking for any information about the Fairbanks Four. So, days later. He comes into the police reluctantly. His grandfather tells him, "Go in there. They're bu- the police are bugging me so much. You know, just just go talk to him." So he goes in, talks to him, and basically, after a very long time, and and some of it's on record, some of it's not on record, some of it was recorded, and some of it wasn't recorded. Um, they convince him that he saw the the Fairbanks Four, and so he actually says, "Oh, I saw a a dark colored four door," and they said, "Well." But Marvin Ro- Marvin Roberts was driving a blue two door, right? And so they actually go and show him the car, and they say, "This is the car that you saw." Wow. And yeah, and, but and, it's night. I mean, blue can look dark at night, right? Yeah, I mean, two door, two doors, and four doors maybe a little more difficult a, to tell. The well, difference. it's a long distance. You don't. I mean, yeah. So you know, maybe yeah, maybe you saw a different car. But the real crazy, the real interesting thing about this whole situation is, could you actually tell who somebody is? positively at 500 feet in the dark and at night and at winter and well intoxicated and and i have another question actually do we know that uh, good old arlo here is not intoxicated while he's at the police station they're never really sure about that no okay but i think it sounded like it sounded like he would typically go on benders that was really the only way he drank drink okay. and he didn't drink too often especially when he was going to be running into police because he had this kind of long history with them. Yes, but he didn't. He wasn't like a functional alcoholic where he's just always drunk and like need a little liquid courage to go into the police station. Like that's not his story. And that's never been. That's not really been part of the the narrative that I've seen. Okay. So, anyways, though, so he takes a stand. Uh, you know, basically the 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 prosecutors they found their silver bullet here. They found everything that ties it all together. They've kind of been suspecting these four guys, and all of a sudden now they have. Uh, a young man who says positively that he saw them assault somebody shortly before this other murder happened. And so they start building this narrative that um, that because they did this, they then did this. Right. They were going around uh, beating people up and robbing them because there's permanent fund money out on the street. And there is it's not a uh, it's not a one time event. They're not just beating up Hartman. They're beating up anyone they can find that's kind of out alone unguarded mm-hmm. is that what you're saying yes that make that, that makes sense so were there other assaults that night yeah there, there were there were a couple yeah um there was at least two other ones that were one um is was definitely i think considered to not be connected to it but there's another one that is thought to have have been uh, maybe related, uh, but never, never enough information on those ones ever to make anything solid. But the police think that like these guys were driving around, drove up, beat up some guys, took their money, and get, went to the next guy, beat him up, took some money, that kind of thing. Yeah. All right. So we get to the trials. Um, the 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 defense is putting up a bunch of friends who, uh, for the Fairbanks Four, that are able to. Um, uh, they have like the uh, alibi statements, basic alibi witnesses who are saying, "Oh, we were hanging out with them. We were at the wedding. All this," and basically the jury found all of them unconvincing. What they did find convincing uh, was the testimony of Arlo Olson, who said, "I saw them out here in front of you know uh, attacking Franklin Dayton," and he became. And, and what was interesting is that he uh, they they believed him, um, even though they brought in 
eyewitness experts who are make you know make a living out of uh, eyewitness identifications and distances, and basically saying that it's scientifically impossible to make a positive identification at, about that distance and about those uh, connection or uh, conditions, excuse me. And th th one of them has actually been so kind of bothered by this case that he's actually made ended up making a program. And, and so in the innocence trials, he was talking about how, you know, he, he basically he's produced a, a software program that can kind of um, approximate what kind of details you'd be able to see. Yeah. Um, and you can print it off in a mugshot. And basically, it's just a blurred face. Like, you can't even tell the gender at some at, at that distance, is what he argues. I'm kind of curious, did anyone ever go back to the scene and actually try and recreate those conditions and just look and see, you know, yeah. with their own two eyes? If you take a journalism class up at University of Alaska Fairbanks, you will likely go do this uh, very uh exercise so you go stand on the porch at the wedding and then you look down the street at that and time of night and try and figure out who who's down there in their winter coat mm -hmm. interestingly during the trial um the state has some cold case investigators who were do you know reviewing the all the information for themselves in preparation for this trial and uh two of them ended up basically looking at the whole thing and saying no way but they they actually told a story on the stand when they were testifying during the innocence trial that they uh, and the state prosecutor uh, went out there to the corner and they, you know, they split up to kind of do the thing. And apparently um, the, the, the two kind of skeptical or investigators said, oh, that sure doesn't look like you could make that identification. And the, and the prosecutor who, you know, went on to try to def try to defend the convictions in court, apparently said, all she said was, Oh my God. And that was it. <laughs> wow. When she saw it for herself. And this is a person who ends up, who has gone on to have to try to protect these convictions in court. Yeah. And uh, that's amazing. That's yeah. a tough job to have. Yeah, exactly. Did you interview her? No, I never have. I've talked to her a few times and I always got the same response, which was, I'm in the middle of an active or an active trial and I cannot make comment. Have you talked to her since? That would be a really interesting follow up. To no, I haven't. No, yeah. That would be really fascinating to know what her perception is of of, of that in retrospect you know yeah like, like i always wondered that too yeah i i kind of have a feeling that we may never find out what happened uh, what was going on in her mind at least because this whole the whole end of this case the whole settlement that was brought forward seems so um the state seems like they made it very unwillingly i guess so yeah all right so um how did so Arlo Olson became the star witness because his story kind of shoehorned in with their narrative. What? How did that change the trial? This was really the smoking gun. If you look at some of the old reporting, um, there's definitely a feeling Alaska natives would lie for each other. They'll cover for each other that they hate the cops. That the, and so, you know, there was which, that, that's which isn't of, surprising at all because they're probably being profiled. Yeah, you, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of understandable. You know, I think I talked to a lot of people who say. You know, it's a really un—it's kind of an unfair assumption, but not necessarily unrealistic given the treatment that they were receiving at the hands of the criminal justice system at the time. Right. And so, um, so anyways, that that was kind of the driving attitude through all of this, and um, so that was why a lot of the friends and a lot of people at the at the um, wedding were all dismissed as all their credibility was just, oh, this is just a huge attempt to cover up for a few guys. Um, but so Arlo Olson being an Alaska native and kind of testifying against them, um, 
becomes even more credible now. And so actually the jurors were interviewed after the delivering the guilty verdicts and they often praised him as uh, being a brave witness, as being, you know, um, convincing. And so actually there's a quote here, which is, um, so one of the jurors says, quote, this Arlo guy is either the world's best liar, in my opinion, or he saw what he saw. He was very convincing. That seems problematic to me. I, the the thing I keep thinking in the back of my head here is, and, and this is ridiculous. I will probably watch too many movies, but who would have who would have the most motive to see someone else put in jail for this crime? <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, yeah. So I mean, yeah, it's hard to say that Arlo, you know, had any involvement in this. But you know, it, it's the the prosecutors in the state were really looking. To, to make sure they had convictions for this because, you know, as a, a young teenager who died on the street alone. Um, but yeah, yeah. So anyways. You're building an entire case around just this one person who's an anomaly and and an alcoholic. Yeah, with, with a very troubling uh, history and then, you know, beyond the trials, a continued troubling um, series of events, you know, there's kidnappings in here and, and he had a kidnapping on his record. He has many domestic violence, uh, and assaults on his record. Um, fast forward, these guys are in jail for, uh, 19 years, eight, 18 and a half years. Um, and are there multiple attempts to, to bring this innocence trial to, to the table? Yeah. And, and so the first one was in the early 2000s. And this is actually when Arlo Olson changed his mind about his testimony. He approached um, uh, public defenders, I believe, and said, what I said on the stand in the John Hartman murder cases in the Fairbanks 4, what we know of the Fairbanks 4 cases, um, wasn't true. He's telling the story of how he was coached into giving his testimony, how um, they made sure to get all the kind of elements right and do things um, that would make him more credible in the eyes of the jurors. Um, but then the detectives at this time actually got wind that he was thinking about changing his story. And by the time the trial came around and was going to this attempt to release, I believe Roberts, um, based on this actually fell apart on the stand when, uh, Olson went up and said, no, you know, I was thinking about changing my mind, but you know, I, I, I just wanted to get out of jail. Wow. He's in prison throughout this time now, and his life has not been particularly good. Uh, you know, he's seen as a narc, you know, he's seen as a snitch. Um, and so come around 2010, 2012, he finally does either get the guts or in some people's eyes, he's been pressured so much behind prison that he finally comes forward. He signs a affidavit talking about all of the coercion that was going into this. So he tells a story about how before any time he was um, told to testify, he would sit down and they would give him his testimony, make him read it and read it and memorize it. So he got it right on the stand every single time. And so... so wait, is, so is he naming names? Is he saying these are the police officers who are making me mm -hmm. do this? Yeah. Is it consistent? Is it always the same people? Yeah, and so it's always. I mean, basically, uh, Arlo Olson was always handled by uh, Fairbanks police detective Aaron Ring, and um, and then the uh, prosecutor Jeff O'Brien. 
how do, how does that. this how does that happen in a system um, that that one person can have so much influence over someone? So so this is the interesting part about when you get into who Arlo Olson is as, is as a person. And I, I think I actually saw a lot of people in the courtroom talk. You know, I think you hear about him. You hear about this guy who's got all these domestic violence convictions who, you know, depending on how you feel, either either is lying back then or is lying now, um, you know, and has, you know, all these run-ins. I think people were expecting him to be some kind of villain, I think, some kind of bad actor, some kind of guy who just really, who knew he was screwing these people over. Um, but when he ends up on stand, he actually is kind of, there's something sad about him. I think there's something, you know, it turns out he's, you know, basically was undiagnosed bipolar his whole life. When you watched him on the stand, you know, oftentimes he would kind of appear first, very stone faced, very kind of medicated looking, which he, he, what he is, he's medicated, um, a lot of this, a lot of this time. And, but as the interview is usually opening up with the defense, which is more friendly to him, he, or I guess the, the Fairbanks Four Prost attorneys, which is more, more friendly to him, um, he kind of livens up and you kind of see what these jurors saw in him, which was kind of a happy go lucky kind of guy. Yeah. Um, you know, they kind of talked about, I think some of the other people have talked about him back on the stand of having this sense of sort of innocence. You know, you're, you're talking about a guy with like two DVs uh, or two assaults, serious assaults on his record already. Uh, but he was, I mean, he kind of had a little bit of charisma, charisma. Yeah. And it, it, it isn't necessarily, you know, the charisma that he was giving across is the kind of charisma of somebody who, um, he's kind of the, he's, he's one of the additional victims in this, in this story. I, I kind of feel like is that, you know, yes, these other guys have had these 18 years taken away from them, but this guy is not, um, his life has really been changed in a dr- pretty dramatic way. You know, yeah. there are stories where he is basically after his testimony, in his original trials was ostracized by his village. Like he was no longer really even allowed there. Like his family stopped talking to him and his, um, his village stopped talking to him. And when he visited, when he was out, was not, you know, these basically people just ignored him. So he's, he's really, he is, a, it's a tragedy for him, right? Is that what yeah. you're saying? Yeah, yeah it is. And, you know, and he, he, you know, has had the, op, you know, he's never, he's never put in jail for what he did then. You know, he was just giving testimony. Um, but, you know, he, and he's, you know, he's, he's had an opportunity at life and he's not, taken advantage of it you know he's kind of wasted it in the sense that he's committed kidnapping so um but yeah but but on a personal level and you know these there's a very heavy depression kind of i feel around him and he does does talk about on the stand that he was feeling like suicidal thoughts at, at, at everything and how he how this whole trial has affected his life too so what where where is he now is he out of prison is no he, he... yeah he's he testified from prison the whole time Okay. So he was and, he was in, in there for kidnapping. Yeah, it's an assault with the kidnapping on there. Yeah. So you covered this innocence trial. You have a really um, you have a firsthand perspective on it. How can you tell us about the um, what that was like for you? How long you spent covering the trial? What the trial was like? Um, you said this isn't the first innocence trial they'd, they've had. Um, yeah, tell us about being in the courtroom and and. Um, going back through this case. Yeah. So this is interesting, and this is kind of really my main experience with this case. I really hadn't wrote anything about 
the Fairbanks 4 until my first day in court, actually. And so the trial was slated to be uh, four weeks, um, Monday through Friday, uh, I think with one 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 day break. And so it ended up going an extra week. Uh, basically, it was sort of a revisiting of a lot of old testimony. We saw uh, Arla Olson there. We saw a lot of the alibi witnesses, the friends of the Fairbanks Four, who either weren't called to trial, testify in the original trials or had new things to say about the way... Um, the police treated them during the trials. So that, that was that was the whole thing, is that this innocence trial is was not just um, attempting to overturn the, the Hartman conviction, but also the Franklin Dayton conviction. And then it also um, was arguing that the police had, uh, pro- had done prosecutorial misconduct in getting the convictions. So they were convicted of, of assault on Franklin Dayton as well as the Hartman murder. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that was and, based on the Arlo Olson testimony, yes. Right. So, um, and Arlo Olson did participate in this one. You got to see him mm-hmm. uh, right there. And that's when you talk about this like weight of sadness, that's something that was that you were just perceiving in his character. Yeah. I mean, he, and he actually did talk about a lot of the depression he had, um, a lot of the regret he had over it. Um, you saw him, uh, you know, one of the big people that helped him kind of. Uh, decide to do this was actually his daughter um he who he didn't look like he had a lot of connection with and so when he's talking about that experience you could tell you know there's emotions running through him you know even if he has done some pretty horrible things and what um did the fairbanks did each of the fairbanks ford event peace freeze and and roberts did they all take the stand and have things to say Mm -hmm. they all did yeah what were your impressions of them so the only person that i got to see in court because i was we were covering this as a tag team with me and uh, another my colleague Sam Friedman. Um, I got to see uh, George Freese in court, and Freese is the one, um, you know, with with the hurt foot. So we got to hear his story of that night, um, which is to say that you know it's really difficult to remember anything uh, 18 years ago, even if it was um, later becomes a momentous night, you know, uh, in your life. And so he really didn't remember a whole lot, and he actually he. Um, he was, I believe, the only person who really had, like, an outburst uh, on the stand. And he actually was cleared from the courtroom. But what you saw on him there was just this really deep sense of frustration. And I think it kind of captured what the community's, community has been feeling with this case. And um, which is which is a sense that, you know, there was never enough evidence in the first place. Even if they did or didn't do it, there was no never enough evidence to put them away. And yeah, I think it that just was never should have happened and wouldn't have happened had it been for other people. Exactly. And so this is when the entire um, audience, basically, all these people who have been watching the trial, you know, just kind of regular citizens, some of them are family members, some of them are just members of the public who um, just kind of didn't have any, maybe didn't have anything else to do, but were there for the full five weeks to listen to it. And... Um, you know, they almost everybody in the whole courtroom stood up, holding their hands up with you know the four, which has become a uh, wow, you know, a symbol of support. And oh my God, the judge did not appreciate that when he came back in. <laughs> so well, that's <laughs> wow. Yeah. Did he run everyone out of the courtroom, or what? What happened? No, but he like... he had a threat. He basically said, you know, this is not the this is not the place for uh, political protests. You know, we have a very serious job here today to try to figure out whether, you know, 
the, the innocence of these men and uh, don't do it again or else I will cl- clear the courtroom. And he never yeah. never actually cleared the courtroom, I don't think. Yeah, that's a hard position for him to be in too because yeah. it's, I mean, he knows that they want justice and that's what he's there for. He, mm-hmm. I mean, but he, there's a process to it that he's trying to respect. Yeah, which was it? Yeah, that which is also the interesting part of this case is that, you know, there's with with the con- post conviction relief is that there's so many like rules and, um, of, and kind of weird ways of the, how they do all this sort of stuff where it's like, you know, it's basically this case was going to boil down to like a checklist of like did this person do this? Did this person do that? Was this person more credible than this person? And it was very interesting where on the front end it appears very emotional. On the back end, it's kind of a weird checklist. It's so frustrating when justice is trumped by a set of rules and a checklist. Mm-hmm. And, and I can, I totally can get that. It, and then on the flip side, and this is what we'll talk about after we take a little break here, is that it also is really frustrating when uh, emotions overtake the rules in a weird, you know. And the flips, the reverse is just as can be just as frustrating. Yeah. Before we proceed with the address, I shall ask uh, Reverend Lonberg to give the benedict the invocation. Let us pray. I'm going to introduce you. Almighty God, through whom we move and have our being, we stand before you this moment with bowed heads and humble hearts, realizing the responsibility that is ours as citizens and servants of this great potential state of Alaska. As delegates to this constitutional convention, we are aware of the need for divine guidance and wisdom. It is our prayer that this document we have been delegated to prepare will be one that will provide for equal liberty and justice for all peoples of Alaska one that will stand the test of time and posterity. Okay. So now, you know, the, the Fairbanks Four are out. They've uh, had their Christmas with their family. They have uh, set up Facebook pages. They have hosted fundraisers. You know, they're they're out and they're free. And, um, and so th- this is, you know, this is an interesting case because, you know, this has a lot of sort of similarities to a lot of these kind of other serial crime dramas that we've been seeing. You know, um, you know, you look at Serial, you look at, you know, Netflix's new Making uh, a Killer, um, Making a Murderer uh, documentary. And, and, you know, there's a lot of, um, kind of in the wake of a lot of these, there's a lot of, I think, armchair... Uh, detectives? Detectives, yeah, who are yeah. who are kind of either going over the evidence in one way or another and saying, oh, this is what really proves that they're innocent or this is what really proves that they're not or they're but guilty. It, it, we're all storytellers. We want to, we want to fix so we the wanna narrative. Know. Yeah. We, we want to know. And so, I mean, I've been doing that this whole episode. Like you, you say that, you know, this guy Arlo was drinking and I'm like, Oh, he was a, he was an alcoholic and he was uh, obviously uh, that was, he was probably drunk when he went in to testify, you know, like, mm-hmm. so I'm making, I'm just it's, making it's human stuff yeah. up out of a whole cloth. It's, it's humanity. We tell yeah. these stories. Yeah. And so we, so we want, we want a conclusion to it. And that's kind of the problem as a reporter I'm having with this case is, you know, you look at it and ultimately, you know, with the available information now, you really will never know whether or not they did it. You will never know 
if the Fairbanks Four committed this murder, or if this other group of men who later come forward with kind of uh, confessions that are also kind of sketchy, a little have some kind of have some sketchy elements to them. But I still find this case really interesting, and that's really because um, you know you can go back and forth whether or not they did it, but really ultimately. Um, the feeling I get from a lot of people is that they should have never been convicted in the first place. Yeah. Well, so why do you think they were convicted? I mean, was it because they needed to resolve this case? Was it because they were racist? Was it because they had other motivations to cover up the crime? Why, why do you think they raced to put these people in jail? I mean, you, you had um, uh, a 15-year-old uh, young man stomped to death in the downtown streets of Fairbanks, you know, he was a few blocks away from uh, a police station. He was a few blocks away from where his friend last saw him. And so there was a sense that, you know, this community, there's a huge outrage that, you know, how could something like this happen in our community? And so there was definitely, I think, a pressure to, to make sure it's solved. Make to, you know, we don't, you know, and that's kind of the, the, another part of this case is now that they're out, you know, who, who did do it? You know, who in the state's eyes did commit this murder, you know? And so there's right. there's kind of a, un, there's the problem with a lot of these innocence cases is that it's sort of a, you're trying to prove innocent, but it's, you're never, you know, no one's doing it. It's not like you have a expense. replacement. You don't yeah. have someone to like go and serve the time instead. You just are saying that we don't have enough information to keep these people in jail. It doesn't mean that they didn't. It doesn't mean that they didn't do it. Even it just means that yeah. we should not have convicted them based on mm-hmm. the information we had. Exactly, and so that's what's really interesting about this. And there's actually a piece um, that I read. I saw it popped up on my Facebook feed, and um, it, with the title, "It doesn't matter whether Stephen Avery did it." And this is the uh, Netflix making a murderer uh, individual. He was the um, exonerated rapist who, um, this, you know, the story is that, you know, then years later he uh, killed a woman and, and hit her on his ranch. But then there's all these kind of questions about whether or not the um, the, the police department uh, kind of cooked the books, you know, or, or, or you know, framed him for it. You know, they, they, they felt so strongly about the 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 rape conviction that they made sure to get him basically right and so and there's all these so questions the, about it so and do you think that that kind of thing might have happened here that they're they're trying to just kind of answer this call basically yeah I mean that's part of, part of it I think there's there's a real rush to to get these convictions I mean there's a huge interest public interest in solving murders right like nobody wants murders to go unsolved and most of the time you know as I've heard kind of people who cover crime a lot is that you know 95 percent of the time whenever the police put forward who killed who did the murder it's open and shut case but about one or two percent of the time you have a case like the fairbanks four where there's really not a whole lot of uh physical evidence or there's not a real clear motive or there's not a real it's not it's not a slam dunk and that's where you kind of get that only adds up to 97 percent okay well 97 (laughs) percent then two percent yes um so anyways, you end up with this sort of situation where uh, in the rush to, to, to find justice, um, it may end up, you know, incomplete delivery of justice and yeah. or even flawed. And, and that's and I think that's that's what I, I really find for me really interesting about this case is kind of the all the sort of individual ways either the system was biased or the system ended up um you know, failing, you know, in, in some people's eyes, failing to find a murderer 
and, and convicting the wrong guys or or you know or you can look at it from the position of you know they convicted these guys and now they're letting them go and so from every angle justice really hasn't been delivered in the case of who killed john hartman and never will be and never will be and, and it's really frustrating for a lot of people and um so anyways, so there's this but so this other piece I was talking about it, whether it, it doesn't matter whether or not Stephen Avery did it is it's really kind of taking a look at this is not necessarily a story about innocence or guilt, it's a story about the judicial system and how the judicial system, the criminal justice system can fail and how it can um, come up short, I guess. And and so it it's not you know us as the public aren't necessarily trying, you know, we want to find out the innocence and or a guilt of somebody, but there's a lot of questions that are raised about how, how detectives work, you know, how, how they, you know, for example, are allowed to introduce, you know, lie to lie to suspects and, and still use that as admissible evidence or how mm-hmm. DNA evidence is used or how eyewitness evidence is used and whether or not somebody who's 500 feet away is a credible witness or not. Um, those are all really interesting, and those are questions that, you know, I think the answers to are maybe not as satisfying. Well, and ultimately, it boils down to what the jury thinks. You know, you're, you're, you mm-hmm. have a jury of your peers, and depending on who that jury is, the outcome can be vastly different. Yeah, and you can see, I mean, you can see, um, you know, a lot of the time in this trial was really interesting because there was no jury in the innocence uh, uh, trial. You know, it's just the it's just the judge, and so you saw some ways how both sides would were kind of building arguments that were designed for a jury, kind of designed to either confuse or to you know set a seed of doubt. And you know, that's kind of what lawyers are doing with a jury is they're trying to tell a more convincing story. Right. And the jurors are supposed to be following the law, but ultimately, if you can convince them that that guy is just a bad, drunk guy, you know, it's that's you know, a lot goes a long way to reaching that conviction. Right. He and, probably should have been picked up for something anyway. So let's just get him now. On exactly. This. Yeah. yeah. And, and so it was interesting here watching a judge rule over it, you know, and basically, you know, there was some kind of emotional plays here and there, and he really didn't stand. He really didn't appreciate it you could tell that um he was upset at we've a lot of seen this. it all a thousand times mm-hmm. i mean yeah. now we can call him out for it too so okay so what does that mean for our justice system do we uh are we do we need to change it do, are, is this as good as it gets um where do we go from here so yeah so this is actually a story i did a little bit after it i was talking to some some uh, legislators asking them about the system um there, they didn't really see too many problems with it. But I was talking to some criminal defense attorneys in the state about, you know, the, the whole thing is that in the settlement that was reached, um, the state admits basically no wrongdoing with its convictions. It says the original convictions were rightfully um, attained and we stand by them. There's not, no wrongdoing. And so that, I think, to a lot of people is really disappointing. That is, as I viewed it, I, I assume that it's to protect the state financially from a lawsuit. Is, um, but does, do, you think that it, do you think that it also is to protect the legal system? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it, it, it's attempting to protect the, the credibility of the legal system and the state's 
state's law legal system. And right. I think, I mean, the, so you, the, the, you, the, you can go free, but you can't question the process that put you in jail for 18 exactly. years. Exactly. I mean, and, and really, I mean, that the statement that they had no wrongdoing also came next to the uh, clause that said, we shall not sue any, like, and it had a list of just everybody. And wow. it was, so there, that was the language there. That was the actual don't sue us thing. And, but then there was also next to it, the, we didn't do anything wrong also. So not, they said very overtly, you can't sue us. And they also said we did nothing wrong. And so it kind of gets this message that if, well, if they didn't think that they did anything wrong, then, you know, what, if anything is going to be learned from this. Do you think anything's going to be learned from this? It's really, I, <sighs> or do you feel like this happened so long ago that the system has already made adjust adjustments? I, a little bit. I mean, it, I think the the you know, on the state level, it's harder to say what's going to happen. It's, I think there is kind of the Department of Law is kind of a little bit of a castle within within the state, which is this very powerful branch, um, and it's kind of in their best interest not to really. Uh, put any vulnerabilities in it, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, you do see more on the state, on the on the local level, where you have the Fairbanks Police Department, who has a real kind of problem right now with credibility. I think there was discussions about AFN never coming back to Fairbanks or pulling out of any future plans to come to Fairbanks because of the the police's sort of non-response after the after the men were were, were released. Um, and I think they now kind of are catching themselves and saying look, we really should at least look at ourselves and, you know, we can review some old crimes. We're going to go interview the guys who now said that they did do it. Um, so they will follow up. So there is follow up there, which is good. Um, why, why put that kind of economic pressure on Fairbanks now that they're out? Why not, why not when it was, why not when the stakes were higher? Why not when they were still in jail? Yeah, it's our, well, I think, you know, so in the uh, release from, or, you know, when the men were released, basically the 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 police chief echoing a line from uh, the state basically said, oh, you know, we still believe that they are the guilty men. Uh, and so that was kind of what I think. I did not realize that he yeah. said that. Okay. That Some, seems, essentially like that. That seems like you know? a really bad idea. Yeah. To, to and say and that. he really, he walked it back and he's you know, now committing resources to, you know, actually looking into the Hartman crime. I think there was a kind of a, basically though, the, the state sort of says, we don't really believe these uh, other men who said they did it. Um, and so we're not going to look into it really. We don't find right. it credible. And, but then, and, well, and there's no the, evidence. I mean, there, I mean, if you can't convict these guys, like there would have to be an entirely new set of evidence that points to these, these other folks who said they did it. Right. Yeah. But there, there is kind of a sense of like, we should at least look into it, you know, yeah. make the call that you need to make. Yeah, that makes I sense. Think the, there's sort of the, the whole feeling is that the men, so there's, there's other five other men um, that were, you know, were part of this case that say that they did it or in kind of various different ways. Um, and from my understanding, they, they really weren't ever interviewed. Like nobody ever really... It basically was it was just ignored when it came in, and it was not necessarily out of malice, but it was just kind of uh, someone was supposed to make some calls, and he left it on his desk and never made the calls. And yeah, so that was never really vetted in any kind of way. And now they're kind of I think backtracking and saying, oh, well, it was never credible in the first place. But it's, it's kind really of, interesting to see how that kind of thing happens inside of our legal system. I mean, 
uh, like I've seen cases where uh, they're kind of going along and then December rolls around and everyone leaves for the holidays and like some guy forgets to call someone and, and things just get kind of left or dropped or oopsed mm-hmm. and uh, and it changes people's lives. Yeah, I mean, so some of the some of the credit some of the things that could be done, um, you know, there are basically the the real issue. One of the main issues with this case is the is the this kind of dilemma of memory and of, of witness witness testimony and, and the ability of people to identify other people. And so there's there's tons of research that's been done on it, and there's plenty of great you know This American Life and Radio Lab podcasts to listen to about it. But basically, the the whole issue is that it's just very difficult. Or people people's memory is just a lot more fluid and a lot less accurate than we would like to think it is. Yeah. And so some of the ways we can combat that is you know especially the the what I've I've heard a lot is, is lineups. Um, so if you look at um, how police departments do lineups to do identifications, there are ways you can really improve that, which is, you know, the the old school way of having the detective in there and you have all the perps walk in in a line and he says, which one of those men did it? You know, it suggests, A, that they're, the guilty party's actually in there, and B, that um, the... When, when the detective is de- detective might have an idea of who did it and he might somehow subconsciously or or consciously um, telegraph that information to the witness so one of the solutions is to have a third party show pictures one at a time is, is this the guy no is this the guy no and you might go through with no's and that's okay because you might not know who the guy is and um so, so there's a couple things that can be changed there, and, and whether or not those will be changed, um, we who knows. See, this is the part of the show where, when when you say who knows, I want to go out and find that person who does know and can tell <laughs> us the answer. And I feel like it's been really hard for us to be able to do that while we're, uh, I don't. This is like a correspondence podcast. You're in Fairbanks. I'm in Juno. But I'm excited <laughs> that when you get down to Juno, I really do want to take it to that who knows part of our podcast and then go and talk to someone that does yeah that'd be great yeah yeah i want to go do that that'll be fun yeah so yeah so yeah i mean i guess that's that's kind of that's where i'm at with this i mean we're we're, what's going on with you what's going on (laughs) i think you i you you really brought it around to to this this thing that i've been thinking about is is the you know how reliable is the human memory um you know we change things all the time in our memory we um, we all know people who are so good at lying to themselves that they believe themselves. Um, we've done it to ourselves. We, we manufacture memories. Um, and, and the, the system is really fantastically bad at dealing with that right now, the, the criminal justice system. And also the problem with this, this rush to get to a conclusion so that people have resolution, um, you know, it, it makes sense to have resolution, but not at the expense of someone's life or, you know, or 18 years of their life. Um, so yeah, I think that there are things that need to be examined and, and thought about. Um, but I don't know if it's a systemic problem or more of like an incidental problem. How, how do you, um, maybe it's more about, making sure people are following the re- the procedures that already exist. I mean, I'm sure that there are there are a lot of things that are done in police work to make sure that um that you're not <laughs> you know bringing the wrong guy to the wrong conclusion. 
Um, and those are they're probably just steps that were skipped along the way in this thing in the in the in, you know in the uh, in the interest of quickness. Yeah, exactly, and and yeah. I think, and that and that's kind of, it's sort of a, it's a difficult question of how you know in reality how do you fix something like this? How do you prevent something like this from happening when, you know, this may very well be the only one case in Alaska where a guilty party has been put away, and so, you know, and so it, it, you end up in this very difficult kind of situation of where, you know, for the most part, from what we can tell the justice system is working pretty well but you know it's it's a question of how do you fix how do you protect against these outliers and yeah and you do need to look at that but i think that a lot of times in policy making there there's a lot of like reactionary things this case went off the off the rails and we need to make sure that doesn't happen again let's make mm-hmm. seven more rules exactly and then all of a sudden everyone's trying to follow these new rules and they lose some of the old rules and and I, I think that there's probably just procedures that you just need to make sure that people are following those procedures. And if there's a real problem, then you, then you fix it. But exactly. again, like that's the the whole problem with haste is that, you know, this case might pro- provide a lot of political pressure for someone to make a change that maybe we don't need. And then it's, it's just as bad as this, as the political and social pressure that put those guys in jail. It's, mm-hmm. it, um, you've got to it's hard to it's hard to box out the space to really think about what the effect of a policy might be mm-hmm. which is good why you know that's why it's so good that we we get to just talk about this stuff we don't get to have to make these decisions quite yet so yeah <laughs> yeah yeah um yeah. it's nice to be able to think about it but it's um yeah if you're under a lot of pressure i can see how you'd make a decision real quick. And that's what those, you know, that's what our leaders are in those positions to do is to make those decisions. It's really unfortunate when they're wrong. Yeah. All right. All right. I think that's, I think that's it. I think we should wind down with uh, our poetry corner. Okay. So this one is, uh, I think from January 12th. Rep Lynn says, if you're a felon, celibate should be your lot. He'd rather you burn than wed, though St. Paul on the whole thought not. Okay, and what is Cindy Smith at C.L. Smith A.K. referring to in her poem? So, uh, okay, so the first uh, set of pre-file bills, these are all the bills legislators get to put in before the session starts. Uh, The first set of them was released uh, last Friday, so that would be, oh, what was that? That would be the 8th. Um, so one of those bills was by Representative Bob Lynn, a Republican from Anchorage, that would um, ban weddings in prison. And it would also ban conjugal visits, and it would ban um, spouses from serving in the same correctional facility. So what's his motivation for this? I don't quite understand, Just it, I doesn't, guess. doesn't like people getting married in prison. Oh. Well, so, that, so th- the, other, the other issue is that, of course, we are... Uh, what less than a year after same-sex marriage became legal in Alaska, and so that might be uh, part of it. Okay. All right. So, well, I'm, I'm so we'll be I'm glad this is this what he's focusing on yeah. while the exactly, state's about yeah. ready to <laughs> just completely go bankrupt. But all right. yeah, cool. and you know, the, yeah. So it's gonna it'll be a fun session. Yes. Yeah. You want to talk about some good news? I can't oh, think yeah. of any good news. I do want to talk about good news. You don't have any good news? you got to have good news. Oh, let me think. I can think. Okay, if, I'll like, talk maybe, about good maybe news. Maybe you will inspire I, me to remember some I, good news. I have not yet listened to President Obama's final State of the Union address, but um, 
I thought it was super cool that he invited uh, he, he invited a couple dozen people to the State of the Union address, and one of them was Lydia Doza, who is a 24-year-old Alaska Native woman uh, who lived here in Juneau and has been going to school studying like software engineering in, in Oregon. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's uh, Simshian, Haida, Inupiat, and it just sounds like an awesome kid who's doing great work in the world and helping out other, like other people who are younger than her. And I, she got to go to the state of the union. That's super cool. Uh, Obama came up to Alaska and I love that he brought someone from Alaska to be a part of this. And, uh, I mean, this girl's sitting there with, uh, she's invited by the president. It's great. And, uh, there, it was a Syrian, like he invited a Syrian refugee, a female graduate of army ranger school, a 12 year old hunger activist, the CEO of Microsoft and this kid from Juno, which is, I love it. Yeah. Actually, that's a super cool story. I think it was, uh, Awesome, yeah. So actually, so mine, uh, um, not a person, but a, but um, for some little fish in Fairbanks. So the Board of Fisheries uh, is considering a proposal that would allow fishers to keep grailing in downtown Fairbanks. And so it's previously it's been catch and release. And so, um, and and so I was hearing about the story, and it didn't really seem particularly like notable in any kind of way. But then I was thinking about it, and I was thinking about all my experiences going catch and release fishing. And I remember how scarred I was when I like tried to get this little like tortured little fish the hook out of his mouth and put this bleeding fish back in the river and hoping that he'll swim, and then watching him f- float side up. And so. Uh, and I've actually talked to another animal rights advocate locally who's just super happy that these little fish can now be eaten and be put out of their misery. And so, uh, so, so that's, yeah, so that's my good news. So there's first grade me will never have to go through that trauma again. Yeah. Good. So you're going to go fishing this summer? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. Great. Maybe, maybe not for the, maybe not in downtown Fairbanks though. So. Yeah. Mmm, yummy. <laughs> you can really taste the buried yeah. car. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, but I love that buried car taste. Yeah. That's really good. It comes That's actually out. what most of the banks here are made out of is you can go dig around and there'll be old cars and washing machines and. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. It really uh, fixes those erosion problems. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that's our uh, that's our show. Uh, you can find us at helloalaska.pizza, uh, or you can email us, hey guys at helloalaska.pizza. Yeah, and we don't have any emails uh, lately, so well, we haven't hit us been up. doing a lot of this lately. But well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the idea here is that we're gonna we're gonna ramp up, right? We're gonna yeah. we're gonna you're gonna come to Juno, mm-hmm. and uh, we're gonna somehow magically create windows of time where you're not totally obsessed with the legislature and we're going to record our show and we're going to do it every week right yes okay i'm, yes. I'm excited It'll be fun. i have it in my to do my, my little to do app yeah okay record it's in your oh well then it's yeah. then it's a, a done deal yeah i get a little there's a little ding I, if i don't do it it really guilts me so it just gets louder and more frequent yeah, exactly yeah <laughs> all right well i'm i'm uh looking forward to seeing you when you yeah. get down to juno and mm-hmm. uh uh we'll see you in a few days yeah. In the meantime, right. you'll be able to find me on uh, Twitter. I'm at FDNM Politics. Oh, and I am at Alaska Robotics. Right. Okay. okay. See you later, everybody. Bye, Alaska.